Okay, okay. You have to do more of this after the service. We can't be taking up too much time being happy with one another. This is serious. This is a solemn assembly. All right, if you uh, have your Bibles, we're going to be a little bit everywhere this morning. And uh, so I'm not going to send you to a text because this is question and answer. If you've been around Calvary Bible Church, you know that uh, usually we ask for questions uh, at the latter part of July and then usually spend a couple of weeks in August just answering your questions. This gives you an opportunity to just ask those questions you always want to know the answer to from the Bible. And, uh, and then I try to answer them. If I don't know the answer, I just don't answer that question. So um, now actually, a lot of questions have already been answered. And uh, if you look at, at our website, you will discover that pretty much any question that has ever been asked is on there somewhere. I don't know where, but it's on there. Uh, but if you've never been to our website, we have uh, sermons by text, by topic, by series. If you go into classes, we have all kinds of classes and conferences and, and handouts. So we have the Calvary Review, and there's really a, quite a large uh, batch of information. We hope uh, in the future to somehow get all of that um, into a database that we can search, but right now it's not quite possible. But a lot of times, if uh, you really want to know the answer to something, if you call the office, we can um, give you a resource that you can listen to or look at or read or whatever. And so please make use of that. So we're just going to jump in this morning. The first couple questions we're going to uh, address have to do with marriage. And uh, uh, since we talked about singles and marriage and talked about divorce and remarriage from Luke uh, 16, 18 last week, I think some people were thinking, well, I have some questions about that. And so uh, here we go. These are um, some of these hard things that you read in the Bible that kind of just mm. Uh, the first is this regarding the exiles who had married foreign women in Ezra 10. They pledged to put away their wives in Ezra 10:19. Was this divorce and was it okay? Now, if you've ever read that, um, uh, it, it's kind of shocking. You'll be reading along and all of a sudden it's like they sent their wives and children away. And you could imagine if you love your children and you love your wife, how heart wrenching that would be. And so a lot of times when we read this, we think, well, surely that wasn't right. And surely they must have done wrong. And and surely they, they just it just doesn't it's not doesn't seem good that God would approve of that. Well, first, let's answer both questions. The, the answer to both questions is yes, they divorced their their idolatrous pagan wives and sent their pagan wives away with their children. And secondly, was it okay? Yes, it was okay. And you think, well, how could that be? Well, let's talk about it. And we'll try to explain this text. And again, uh, the frustrating part is I just want to preach a whole sermon on every one of these questions. Um, They are so fun. But um, in short, as short as I can do it, why was it okay? The The real question is, why was it okay? Why did they do this? And why was it okay with God? First of all, you need to go back and you need to ask yourself, why were the people of Israel taken captive in the first place? Ezra records what happened when they returned from captivity and began to settle in the land and were in the land of the while. The question is, why were they in captivity in the first place? And the answer is idolatry. If you read through Kings and the prophets, you will see that they had committed idolatry, worship foreign gods over and over again. And God had made this covenant with them that they all agreed to in Deuteronomy that if they started worshiping idols, God would um, send enemies upon them and drive them into foreign lands to be captives. And so that's what they did. And so that's what he did. And so they have just come back, they've settled in the land, and they've married foreign women. God wanted the people of Israel to know that he alone was God, and he alone was to be worshipped and served. He, he didn't want them worshipping false gods and idols, which are really no gods at all. Uh, he wanted them serving him and him alone, since he is the true God, and that's, I think, pretty understandable. And he wanted the people of Israel to be holy. In, in the church, we have a different situation, in that the ter- church is to go out into the world and evangelize, 
God's plan for Israel was for them to be holy and separate from the nations so that the nations would look upon them, see that they were separated from sin and holy, and then be drawn to ask why and be led to the Lord in that way, which they, of course, didn't do a very good job. But holiness is a concept we need to understand. I think a lot of times we use the term, uh, we use to be sanctified or to be holy. The word means to be set apart from sin and unto God. You know, we have certain things we, we set apart for certain tasks um, in our house. You know, we have a mixer that we would, you know, mix cakes with or whatever. But if your husband came in and dumped some sand and gravel and semen in there and was making some concrete you might get a little angry. Why? Because it's set apart for a different purpose. It's not a concrete mixer. It's a food mixer. And so in a similar way, God wants us to be set apart to be holy unto him and apart from sin. So that's why when you read the law of Moses, there's all these regulations. Do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. Because there's all these different regulations which would make Israel look distinct separate from all the other nations, the pagan nations that were around them. Because of this, God then gave instructions to Israel. um, And in, for instance, Exodus 23, verses 31 through 33, he talks about how he's going to drive out the inhabitants from the land and they're going to move into the land. And he says this, You shall make no covenant with them or their gods. They shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Now there he's not talking about marriage, but at least he says there's a snare there with their gods. And of course, um, he hasn't made that covenant of blessing and curses yet. And so they're not as in big a trouble as they're going to be if they do this. But then he says in Exodus chapter 34, verses 12 through 16, watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land in which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather, you are to tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their ashram, for you shall not worship any other god for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods and someone might invite you to eat of their sacrifices and you might take some of the daughters uh, for your sons and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons to play the harlot with their gods. And, and here is... Um, Moses uh, writing down God's instruction to them saying, this is what's going to happen. When we go into the land, you're going to drive those people out of the land. So they stay out of the land. Why? Because if you befriend them and maybe you start spending time with them and start eating with them and they're sacrificing their food to pagan gods and you start by eating food that's sacrificed, you say, well, it doesn't have really any cooties on it. It's not going to hurt me and it's going to be okay. Then what happens is, is you get comfortable with their paganism and then their daughters and your sons start marrying. And then pretty soon those daughters who are pagans start influencing your sons and start having children and they raise them up to be pagans. And pretty soon they're living in the land. You've got full blown paganism happening in the land. And that is exactly what happened in Israel. In Deuteronomy 7, 3, we read, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. So this is this was the regulation. No intermarrying with foreign women. And we know why. Because idolatry would bring God's wrath upon them, and God would disperse them into other nations if they worshipped idols. Solomon is a great example of this, uh, of this sin, in that he was very wise. He was very godly. Um, you know, at the beginning, he thought, you know, I'm wise. God's given me this. I'm king. I can handle this. And I want to make peace in Israel. So I'm going to marry all these foreign women to make a political alliances and bring peace. And you know what? He did. And you know what? It brought peace. But you know what else it brought? Idolatry into Israel. It brought major idolatry into Israel. Why? Because these wives whom he loved kept saying, well, can I just set up a little, you know, altar to, to, you know, Baal? Can I just set up a a little ashram, a little pole and kind of worship this little totem pole thing? 
Can I just like, you know, have my own little corner and then they're teaching their kids to do that. And pretty soon those kids are talking to other kids at school and she's talking to other neighbors. And pretty soon idolatry begins to grow and grow and fester in the land. And then God has to keep his word. God always keeps his word. And then they have to suffer the consequence of their sin. In first Kings 11, one, it says, now Solomon loved many foreign women among the, uh, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. And it lists Moabite women, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall you associate with you for they will surely turn your heart away after their God. Solomon held fast to these in love. Nehemiah even comments in Nehemiah thirteen twenty six that though God loved Solomon, though he had great wisdom, yet these foreign women even caused him to sin. And so that's a problem. And uh, that's what we need to understand as we approach the text in question. How is it that Ezra could agree And the Bible say nothing about these guys all sending their pagan wives and children away. And if you were to read Ezra chapter 9 verses 1 and 2, I'll just give you a summary of chapter 9 and and talk about how it all came about. What happened was is the, the priests and the Levites and leaders are discovered having married. This is Ezra. They've come back from captivity. And Ezra discovered a lot of the leaders have married all these pagan women. He can't believe it. Didn't you just come back from captivity? Weren't you just in captivity because of idolatry? Now you're marrying idolaters? And oh, he just falls down on his face. He pulls out his hair. He rips hair out of his beard. He's weeping. He's crying. He's just broken. And pretty soon this goes on and on and crowds begin to, to, I mean, you know, it's like, why is Ezra the prophet, you know, wailing in the middle of town? And more and more people get to gather and they begin to hear him as he's pouring out his heart to God because he doesn't want them to be destroyed and driven off into captivity again for another 70 years or whatever, maybe 120 this time. He's he's weeping and the people begin to get convicted and pretty soon they all begin to weep and they begin to repent of their sins. And then a man named Shechaniah comes forth and he proposes that really to be truly repentant, we need to get rid of our foreign wives so that they won't continue to infect the land. Since the law makes it clear that God doesn't want idolaters in the land. And so they begin to inquire about this. And what happens is, is so many of them seem to have done this. The the leaders were leading the pack that. They said, Ezra said, okay, this is what we're going to do. In three days, we're going to come back and we're going to meet here and we're going to deal with this. Well, in three days, it's raining. It's the middle of winter. It's cold. You know, there's no indoor heated amphitheater. Everybody from Israel comes and they're all marching through the mud and they're cold and it's miserable. And they're standing outside and they realize, oh no, what have we done? And they realize there's too many people to deal with right then and there. So all the leaders of the city are then required to go back to their cities and they're given three months to survey everybody in their city to find out who married the pagans, the idol worshipers. And so that happens. And at the end of three months, all those people, all those husbands are required to divorce their wives and send their wives away with their children. I'm sure it's... It's a condensed narrative. I'm sure they took them back to their people, took them back home to their fathers or whatever, and tried to make provisions for them. And you think, man, that that sounds really brutal. It is. But it's not as brutal as when we sin against God. That's brutal. You see, a lot of times when we see things like this, we think, well, isn't that kind of harsh? Isn't that kind of just like majorly bad? Well... What happens is, is when sin enters the picture, things always get bad. You know, like, let's say you have a a husband who's beating his wife. 
And she comes and tells us and the police get involved and we say, you know, you need to separate from your husband until he gets some help. And the Bible says don't separate except for time for the purpose of prayer by mutual consent. But, you know, we're going to have you separated and they begin to grow apart. And, you know, you're just thinking, well, what do you do? I mean, what's better to send the wife home and get beat up by the husband or to have them separate when they can't have a relationship and they should be together? The answer is neither. The answer is husbands love your wife, cherish your wife, nurture your wife, live your wife in an understanding way, grant her honor, treat her as a weaker vessel, serve her. That's the answer. But when you don't do what God says, then you suffer the painful consequences. What was the solution? When you've got a whole bunch of idol worshiping pagans in the land and the law says you can't have them in the land, what are you going to do? Send them away. And so all those husbands sent all their wives and with their children away. And I'm sure it was heart wrenching, but it was the only way to deal with the problem so that it wouldn't bring God's judgment upon them again. Now, if you look in the New Testament, you know, does does it say that we should do the same thing? No, Um, it doesn't even say to do it in the Old Testament. It says don't do it to begin with. But of course, there wasn't a law um, necessarily that regulated what to do if you married the pagan. But here we see the example. Now, is there any parallels like this that go on today? Well, we've already seen from 1 Corinthians 7, if you've been here in previous weeks, that we are not to divorce unbelievers, that uh, if they are willing to live with, uh, unbelievers willing to live with the believer and uh, and in harmony, then that's fine. If they want a divorce, yes, um, it, Paul says, let them leave. But um, if they're willing to stay, then then stay with them. Probably the closest parallel is in the church. Remember, Israel was to be a holy nation separate from the world. Well, in our instance, the church is to be holy separate from the world. And so when somebody comes into the body of Christ and they begin to call themselves a Christian and they're living in open sin and they're doing whatever it is that's contrary to God's word and they are confronted in private and they won't repent and they are confronted in by two or more and they won't repent. Then we tell it to the church and we do what? We remove them. Why? Because God wants the church holy, just like he wanted Israel holy back then. So that is probably the closest parallel. So that is a short answer to a very interesting text. Secondly, why did the prophets in the Old Testament not say anything against polygamy? I know I read these, I kind of I kind of laugh because I think, oh, these are painful. Um, You know, how come there isn't a verse that says, you know, David sinned against the Lord by having too many wives? Well, we saw the one about Solomon that the wives, those pagan wives, caused even him to go astray. But first of all, and a couple texts are mentioned here, Deuteronomy 17, 17, which talks to kings not to multiply wives, and Deuteronomy 21, 15, which talks about the regulation of polygamy when it happens. Um, But uh, let's just talk about why doesn't the Bible speak out against polygamy? First of all, it does. You say, well, where does it do that? In Genesis 2, 24. Genesis 2.24 is the blueprint for marriage. It is quoted four times in the New Testament as God's blueprint for marriage. And what is that blueprint? For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One man, one woman, two people becoming one, that's marriage. There's no, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wives. It's one man, one woman, and that's how we see it. That is God's standard. You even see it more clearly in the New Testament. For instance, uh, elders are to be the husbands of what? One, one wife, a man devoted to one woman, not two. So we have the Genesis 2.24 scripture, which of course came at the very beginning, even before the law, which gave that. And then, as they mentioned in Deuteronomy 17, 17, um, it does say kings shall not multiply wives for themselves. Solomon did it anyways in disobedience to that law, too. In Deuteronomy 21, verses 15 through 17, it talks about a man, if he has two wives, and what happens? You know, remember when Jesus said, uh, you can't serve God and mammon, you can't serve two masters. Well, guess what? You can't love two women equally. You're only going to favor one over the other. 
And so that text is about this. You get married and you get two wives and you, you love one a little bit more than the other. But the problem is, is the, the unloved wife or the less loved wife, that one is the first one to have a child and that's your firstborn. But as all of a sudden you begin to love this other woman more than her, she's coming to you and going, well, I know my son came second, but I'm the most loved wife. Can't you make him the firstborn? So he gets the double blessing. And so that is a regulation against, no, the firstborn gets the double portion, uh, whether she's the loved wife or the unloved wife. That's what that regulation is. It's not giving permission for polygamy. It's not advocating polygamy. As we learned last week, there are many laws in the Old Testament which regulate sin when it occurs. So if the sin of polygamy occurs, that's just one law that deals with the sin once it happens. But the standard is Genesis 2.24. Okay, third. One, another thing, just before we move on. Another kind of uh, a subtle argument against polygamy is this. Um, when you read about the people in the Old Testament who had more than one wives, were they happy? There. That's another reason. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 and 11 talk about the Old Testament being written for uh, our instruction and giving us examples so that we would learn not to crave evil things. And so when, you've, when you read about those who had more than one wives, I mean, you need to learn from that example. Okay, moving on. Number three. When did the 22 books of the Old Testament become 37? I think this is a typo because they didn't. They became 39. Um, so 39 books of the Old Testament, I think was a typo, but I just wanted to say yeah, it was 39. And um, uh, when did the order change and when did that all come about? Well, this is kind of interesting. When you when you study history, you discover that, you know, around the time of Jesus and before that, the the Hebrew Bible had 22 books and ours has 39. And you might wonder, well, why is that? Well, what's going on there? Well, let me tell you. In the Hebrew Bible, it used to have 22 books and they were divided up into three divisions. This was uh, the Torah, which is the five books of law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Uh, And then there was the Nevi'im or uh, the prophets, the eight books of the prophets. And in this case, Joshua and Judges were combined and first and second Samuel and first and second Kings were combined into one. And then there was um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then all the 12 minor prophets were combined. So even though there was the same content that we had. There was a lot of combining of books. And finally, there was a third division called the Kituvim. Those are the writings, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Esther, Daniel, and then Ezra and Nehemiah were combined in Chronicles. First and second Chronicles were combined. So all the same books existed. It's just that they were combined and organized into groups a little bit differently than ours. There is only one place in the Bible where the threefold division is mentioned. Um, as far if you go through the, like the New Testament, you'll see talk about the scriptures and sometimes you know the writings or Moses and the prophets. But there is one text that mentions all three divisions. It's at the very end of Luke after his resurrection. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and we read this in Luke twenty-four verse forty-four. Jesus says. These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The Psalms being part of the Kituvim, the writings. So those are the three divisions. That's why there was 22 books. The second part of the question is, when did they become 39? Well, uh, if you remember what happened in like, you know, Daniel tells us about the, the Gentile empires. There was the Babylonians and then there was the Medo-Persians. And then what, who came after them? The Greeks. And so Alexander the Great came in, conquered, and he wanted to have a standardized language for all the nations he conquered so they could intercommunicate and Hellenize or, you know, bring Greek culture into all these ones. So he created common Greek for everybody to speak. And that became the common language. It became so popular that pretty soon um, the the Jews were saying, you know, we should probably um, get 
a translation that is in Greek because so many people are speaking Greek now that sometimes we can't, people don't know Hebrew and so they can't read the scriptures. And so they went to task and they translated the Bible from Hebrew into Greek and that is called the Septuagint or the LXX. And in the LXX, the, uh, they broke up many of the books so they would be smaller and easier to reference and they ordered them a little different. Yes, they had the five books of the law, five books of poetry, 12 books of history, five major prophets and 12 minor prophets totaling 39. So that is when that happened about 200 BC. Four. Why were, why were the dialogues in Job, uh, being a true story, recorded as poetry rather than prose? If the original dialogue was not spoken in poetry, why would God inspire an altered version and not record it word for word in what they said? And, you know, th- that's a good question. You think, well, if, you know, obviously Job and his friends didn't speak with polished you know, poetry when they spoke to each other. Um, uh, so uh, why is it recorded in poetry, in Hebrew poetry, um, if it wasn't that way? Well, here's the answer to that question. Because a lot of times when something is recorded, it's recorded because it's true, not because it's verbatim, not because it's chronologically consistent, not because it's, um, you know, uh, everything is exactly in the same sequence, order and comprehensiveness as it could be said. For instance, if I were to, uh, you know, get here early in the morning and, and there were, there were three cars out front and there was a, a red car, a blue car and a white truck, um, somebody might come in and say, hey, there's a nice red car out there. Is that true? Yeah, there is. Um, somebody else could come in and say, yeah, there's three cars out there. Is that true? Yeah. And somebody could come in and say, yeah, I saw this really nice white truck out there. Is there a white truck? Yeah. See, that's not a problem. Leaving out information is not a problem. What's a problem is, is if I come in and say there's only a red car when there's more. But see, like when you read the Gospels, the Gospels record the same events, many of the same events. But if you read them, even the accounts are different. Why? Because they're edited. Because things are left out. Why? Because each author is trying to emphasize something different. You know, Jesus, the the king, Jesus, the son of man, Jesus, the servant, Jesus, God. Um, You know, they're each kind of taking information from Jesus's life and they're compiling it to emphasize a certain theme. This isn't a contradiction. A contradiction is when they say one thing and something else that exclude the other thing. Then that's a contradiction. And so when God records events that happens. He doesn't do it because uh, he wants to meet up with copyright laws and modern expectations of journalism. It's amazing how um, how stringent unbelievers get about the Bible. It's like, well, you know, it doesn't seem very scientific. Well, it's not a scientific document. Now, well, you know, yeah, how come this says that and that says that? Well, because he's emphasizing this and he's emphasizing that. I mean, you do that, right? If I say, oh, so you went to Disneyland. Yeah. So what happened? And, you know, you give me three or four sentences. Well, that's not all that happened. But that's part of what happened. And so it counts. Well, a lot of times people want to discredit God. Another reason why um, the the uh, book of Job is in poetry form is because poetry is easier to memorize. And, uh, you know, in our day and age, and I can say this because I live in this day and age, people are getting dumber. I mean, you think to yourself, well, no, we're not. We're we're advanced civilization. Well, we're not very civilized and we're not very smart. I mean, how many people here know seven languages? You got any seven language people here? Raise your hand if you dare. See, see all the hands. Look around. See all those hands. Yeah, there's so many people here who know seven languages. Well, when I was in and. Polokwane, South Africa, which is like right on the northern part of of uh, South Africa before it gets into the real tribal areas. All these guys come down from these tribes and and uh, they live in towns that have no electricity and no water and have no computers. And they come to learn how to preach the gospel there. They all speak seven languages at least. Now, think about that. Think about that. All these people who live in that very uncivilized culture. Well, they can speak seven languages. 
Some of them eight, some of them nine, some of them ten. And I was preaching to them. Some, I, I thought, I, I don't think I'm connecting with these guys. And some of the guys are looking down and, and I'm having, making eye contact with them, you know. So I asked one of the professors, what's the deal here? I'm, I'm, I'm preaching my heart out and I'm looking at some of these guys and they're kind of staring at the ground or staring up at the ceiling. And they said, well, English isn't their first language. It's just one of, you know, seven or eight or nine or ten languages they know. And so when you're speaking, they usually look at something so as not to be distracted so they can translate it quickly. It's like, oh, okay. I mean, I don't even know English yet. Um, I'm hoping I die before I get my superlatives fixed. The whole point is, is when you have poetry, it's easier to memorize. And back then, if you wanted to have the Bible, you didn't pull out your PDA. You didn't pull out your little Bible like this and, you know, your little compact, whatever. You memorized it. You memorized huge chunks of information, stories, genealogies, church histories. And since poetry is easier to memorize, there's a lot of poetry in the Old Testament. There's an acrostics and things like that, which help you memorize things if you know Hebrew. In English, it doesn't come across, but we know if you look in your Bible, you'll see it's indented and it shows you that it's poetry. So that's why. All right, five. Why do we and most other Protestant churches put so little emphasis on the worship of the Holy Spirit? Is, you know, can we, is it okay to pray to Jesus or, or pray to the Holy Spirit? Um, you know, when Jesus was on earth, he prayed uh, to the Father. Um, can we do specifically to Jesus or specifically to the Holy Spirit? Is that okay? Is that acceptable? Is there any scriptural evidence for this? And the answer is yes and no. Um, first of all, when Jesus was on earth, um, he uh, prayed to the Father. And so that's kind of the example we get from Jesus. He was a man living on earth. And so he prayed the Father. That was the standard example. But you need to remember that Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit all have different roles and functions within the Godhead. Jesus is, you know, the mediator between God and man. He is the one who represents God to man. He is the, you know, the angel of the Lord, the voice in the burning bush. You know, when God speaks from the mountain, it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is, is that person that communicates God to man. Then you have the, the Holy Spirit, who is the one who energizes people and convicts people and confronts people and causes them to be born again and, and illumines the truth and all of these things that the Holy Spirit does. And the Father is kind of the planner, the overseer, the one who sends his son into the world. And, and so they each have their own roles, but those roles all work together in perfect harmony. And the Holy Spirit's role is to point people to Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. This is Jesus. Go to Jesus. Look at Jesus. So when you look in the scriptures, yes, there are the many examples of Jesus praying to the father, but there's also many examples of prayers to Jesus or instructions to pray to Jesus. I'm just going to give you a couple so you know that they're there. John 14, 14, Jesus says, I'm going to go away. And when I go away, he, he says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. All you got to do is pray to me in my name and I'll do it. Um, as long as it's according to my will, I'm, I'm going to do it. So right there, he advocates praying to him. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, Paul addresses those who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Yes, the Christians constantly are calling out to Christ, praying to Christ. Um, That's standard. When Stephen was being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, verse 59, he calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in prayer. So that's just a couple of many examples that could be given of praying to Jesus. All the examples that uh, are praying to the Holy Spirit are zero. There isn't any. There's no examples, and sorry, there just isn't any. So what does that mean? Well, faithful believers have always conformed to the Word of God, and since the Bible doesn't emphasize praying to the Holy Spirit, gives no instruction about praying to the Holy Spirit, therefore most believers just stick with the Bible and do what the Bible says. They pray to the Father, or they pray to the Son, or they pray to God in general, and in praying to God in general, they're praying to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Um, and so that's what um, is usually done. Now, would it be a sin to pray to the Holy Spirit? Absolutely not. I don't think it would be. Uh, otherwise, it would be stated in there, except uh, you're kind of in uncharted waters because it just isn't mentioned. So um, that's all I can tell you because the Bible doesn't say. Daniel 9, verse 24, question 6. In Daniel 9, 24, it says that during the 70 weeks of Christ's second coming, actually the 70 weeks of Daniel leading up to Christ's second coming, that vision and prophecy will be sealed up. 
Yet our church's stance is that signs and wonders and prophecy have ceased during the apostolic age. Does that mean it will start up again? So actually we have like three, four questions thrown in here. And uh, this is a very tricky one. Uh, Daniel 9.24 is a very uh, summer. It's a summary verse of what will have been accomplished by the 70 weeks of Daniel. That is the 70 weeks when the Gentiles are pretty much dominant and um, they record the history of Israel from that time all the way through the Gentile nations until the second coming. When Jesus comes back the second time, then the 70 weeks will have been completed. And these are the things that are mentioned. That first, they will be finished of transgression. Second, and make an end of sin. Third, they will make atonement for iniquity. Fourth, they'll bring in everlasting righteousness. Fifth, they will seal up vision and prophecy. And sixth, anoint the most holy place. So we are talking about vision and prophecy. What does that mean? What does it mean, seal up vision and prophecy? And this is where the problem is, because um, once you understand that, then the rest is pretty much easy to understand. The problem is, is what does that mean? And uh, people are in disagreement, but um, here are, I think, a couple good options. Charles Feinberg and Leon J. Wood suggest the, fra- the phrase means to confirm um, Daniel's prophecies. In other words, when he says, when the 70 weeks are finished, after we, you know, the church is here, is raptured, after we go through the tribulation, when Christ comes back a second time, when that, all of that is completed and everything that's told Daniel is completed, then all of it will be confirmed. All of it will be sealed up. There won't be any doubt anymore. It'll all be shown to be correct. And they're saying that's, that's what the word means. To basically, to seal up means that um, you won't be, you know, have it unsealed and you're waiting for it to happen. It'll be, oh, it's done. It's sealed up and, you know, ready to be put in the shelf for archiving. John Walbert suggests the phrase means that by the time the second coming occurs, visions and oral prophecy, those sign gifts type things will come to an end. And, uh, And obviously that's true too. Um, When Jesus comes back, he will rule and reign from Jerusalem. The word of God will go forth from Zion. There will be no need to have visions and prophecies to find out the word of the Lord because Jesus will be present and tell us. And actually both of those interpretations fit together because we could say, yes, it confirms it and it brings an end those gifts. Okay, the second part of the question is concerning Calvary Bible Church's position on signs and, and gifts and prophecy and why they came to, an, why we say they came to an end during the apostolic age, that is the age the apostles were still living. And, uh, and this is a totally different question. It's not what Daniel's talking about. It is true that when Christ returns, there will be a, a no need for prophecy, as we've already stated. Um, and, uh, and before I answer the question, I'm going to give you a couple resources you can look at because I can only deal with this briefly, and there's two sermons that would be very helpful if you understand why do you guys think that, you know, tongues and, and sign gifts and miracles and healing aren't happening now. Um, here's where you can look. There's a sermon on our website if you go there, and it's entitled Miracles Then and Now. It is from Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Luke 6, 17 through 19, May 8th, 2005. There's another sermon called The Purpose of Signs and Wonders. This is from Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 11. Luke 9, 1 through 11, it's preached June 4th, 2006. And these are some of the most frequently downloaded sermons on the website because people want to know this question. So why do we teach the sign gifts and prophecy that is um, receiving direct revelation from God through visions and dreams and things like that and even doing the ability of guys to do miracles? You know, I go down to St. Joe's and empty out the whole hospital at lunch someday. I think, I think I'll skip lunch and just heal everybody there. You know, um, why don't we think that's happening? Here are the reasons first, because miracles, signs, and wonders were never given, never given to be normal for all believers in every place in every time. When you look at the Bible and you look at, um, what the Bible says, what do you discover? You discover that Moses was given those gifts, wasn't he? Yes. And Elijah and Elisha were given those gifts. And Jesus and the apostle and a few select followers, the 70 or whatever. So we have, yes, some believers, Moses, 
Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and his apostles, and a few of the, the, his followers were given those uh, miraculous gifts to do miracles. Now that is within 6,000 years. It was always a very select group in a specific location for a certain time, and then the gifts came to an end. That is what the scriptures teach. So, that rules out. That's one of the reasons why we don't believe those gifts are for all people of all time. Secondly, when you look at the purpose and signs and wonders, you understand that what are they for? I mean, are miracles just for like wow effect? Cool. I can turn this water into blood. Oh yeah, I can turn it back again. <laughs> you know, and I mean, are they just for entertainment's sake? Wow effect? For fun? Like, cool. Let me do a, you know, a little dead bird. Let me raise it from the dead. You know, let's say, I'm hungry. You know, why do I have to go to the store? You know, lunch. Um, why, why is that? Why are miracles? Well, miracles have a purpose. And their purpose is to authenticate the messenger of God or to authenticate Jesus, the son of God, when he was here on earth. And those are the two, two reasons. When miracles were given to those few people, in every instance that they were given, the word of God was being written. Moses wrote the law of Moses. The prophets, Elijah and Elijah represent the prophets and all of their writing. Jesus and apostles, you know, the apostles wrote the New Testament. So while revelation was given, these gifts functioned, and once the revelation was complete, the gifts what? Ceased. So once God gave them the message, but even there were other times when the word of God was being written and there were no miracles. God just did it as a mercy at certain times. Also, if you read church history, you will discover that after the apostles died, there wasn't a whole bunch of people running around raising the dead and healing all manner of disease and sickness and adding new books to the Bible there were some false teachers who were doing that, but no true ones. So church history verifies that they came to an end. Secondly, or fourthly, that's not secondly, we've missed a third. That would be the third. The fourth thing is that the, once the scriptures are written, we have something more sure than miracles. See, a lot of times people want miracles because they think they're, they're compelling. You know, I go down San Fernando Boulevard and I say, hey, you know, do you believe in God? It's like, listen, I'm an atheist. It's like, well, how about if I were to turn this chair into a dog? Then would you believe? Well, let's see you do it. And then I turn the chair into a dog and runs away and gets hit by a car. Okay. All right. So that happens. Now, does a guy come to faith? No. See, so people, Christians, a lot of times long for miracles and in their heart, they want those miracles because if I could just, if they could just see a miracle, then they would believe. Then my unbelieving uncle, my unbelieving mom and dad, my unbelieving children or whatever, then they'd see that, that God exists and God is true. And then they would be compelled to come to know the Christ. And that's not how it works. There are a couple messages and you can listen to these messages online. I'm just going to uh, refer to them and summarize them very quickly. In Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, there are two messages called the more sure word. It's in the series on called the word of God. And if you listen to that, you'll kind of get the big gulp of what I'm going to tell you in a very condensed form now. Peter in Second Peter chapter 1 talks about that God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And it comes through the, the God's precious promises through the true knowledge of him, which comes from the word of God. And Peter wanting to emphasize that God's word is far more important than miracles tells of the most incredible, miraculous experience he ever had. The Mount of Transfiguration says we went up on that mountain and we saw Jesus in his kingdom glory. We saw him just radiant in glory. We saw Moses and Elijah and they're talking to Jesus. We heard God the Father speak from the heaven. And you know what? We have something more sure than that. And you know what that is? It's the Bible. The more sure word to which you do well to pay attention is a light shining in the dark place. So you can read about that. You remember what happens in the rich man and Lazarus, which is coming up in Luke. And I can't wait to get there. I think it's be three weeks. We'll be there. And the rich man and Lazarus, 
You remember what happened? The rich man goes to hell. He's suffering in hell. And what does he tell Abraham? Abraham, send Lazarus back to my brothers. And then they, that, so that they will believe and not come to this place of torment. And Abraham says, oh, they have Moses and the prophets. And in other words, they have what? The Bible. Then he says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone rises from the dead, then they will believe. And then Abraham says, no. If they do not believe in Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if someone rises from the dead. Miracles don't save anyone. I mean, think about the people who came up out of Egypt, who saw the 10 plagues, who crossed through the Red Sea, who had bread fall from heaven. Their clothes never wore out. They never got sick. The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire every day for 40 years. And all the women who were in the Hebrew study know that the end of Hebrews chapter three, when it talks about those people, how they were in the wilderness and saw all those miracles for 40 years, he said they all dropped dead because of Unbelief. Unbelief. Say, well, they saw lots of miracles. Yeah, but miracles don't save anybody. That is a false assumption that people make. In John chapter 12, verse 37, it says, but though he, that is Jesus, had performed many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Jesus brought a curse down on his hometown near Capernaum. Woe to you for the signs of, that were committed in Sodom and Gomorrah were committed. If they had the signs that were committed among you, they would have repented in dust and ashes. And yet you have not believed. So miracles never are compelling. They just point to the object of faith. What saves people is a clear, clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what is compelling. When the Holy Spirit attests the word of God, it breaks people's hearts and they come to repentance and faith because they understand the truth and then they believe and then they are saved. And so that is what we see when we look at the Bible. The Bible is not um, some sort of card trick type thing where we kind of do a bunch of miracles and people go, wow, that is so cool. I think I'll become a Christian. No, that's not how people are saved. People are saved when the gospel is presented that Christ died for his sins according to scripture, that he was buried and that he was resurrected on the third day. And that if you repent of your sins and you place your faith in Christ and Christ alone, he will cause you to be born again. And that happens because of a work of God, a miracle in and of itself in the heart of a sinner. Now, of course, there are those people, and this is another thing we can talk about. There are those people who say, well, I have the gift of healing and I can raise deads. And I heard this about this missionary and there's always somebody in another country in another culture who was healed of an earache or something. You know, just compare what you see and what you hear with what's going on in the Bible. In the Bible, it was verified. Go show yourself to the priests. Now, everybody knew the lame guy who had been laying in front of the gate for 40 years. Everybody knew the woman who spent all this money, her entire fortune, trying to get healed. And Jesus, she was healed by just touching his hem of his garment. Verifiable. Raising the dead. It's hard to fake that one. Um... Now you have these faith healers and they're con artists. They are con artists. They're working you for money. They're deceiving you. They're deluding you. They're trying to get you to believe things. And remember, in the last times, it says that Satan will come on the scene. Both Jesus and Paul state this emphatically, that the way people are going to be deceived in the last days is by what? Lying false signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the what? The elect. I mean, there's going to be, that's one of Satan's tricks. And so we have the more sure word. Pay attention to that. Okay. Now, we're out of time. Oh, oh, I wish I could just finish this. Um, you, guys, you guys give me five more minutes. I beg you by the mercies of God. Um <laughs> Let's just talk about, let's just talk about signs and, and wonders. I want to give you, um, I want to give you the, the last part of the question is this. If we don't believe that, then, then are miracles going to start up again or, or what's going to happen? 
You know, if we're saying, okay, the signs and wonders, as far as spiritual gifts, God's still doing miracles, but signs and wonders as spiritual gifts given to believers is no longer functioning. Are they going to start up again? And the answer to that question is yes. It's yes. And how do we know that? I'm just going to give you two quick examples. One is from Acts 2, verses 17 through 21. It's actually from Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 through 31. But Paul quotes that prophecy. And this is what Joel says will happen right before Christ returns in glory. Listen to this. Joel 2, 28 through 31. It will come about after this that it will pour out my spirit on on mankind, which is what happened in Acts. That's why one of the reasons Peter quoted this text. And your sons and daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions and even male and female servants. I will pour out my spirit in those days and I will display wonders in the sky and earth and blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome, awesome day of the Lord comes. And so Jesus speaks of this in Matthew 24. Four, that that these things are kind of things will happen right before he returns. So during the tribulation period, the church is removed and now God turns his attention to Israel and he begins to do miracles and give visions and dreams and prophecies. Two examples would be the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. You remember those two? Uh, the two witnesses in the book of Revelation, they display miraculous gifts. For instance, it says in Revelation eleven three through 6, that they can command fire to come down of heaven, devour their enemies, just like Elijah did. That's a good gift if you have enemies. Um, they can cause drought. They can turn water into blood. They can strike the earth with every kind of plague. And so... They do the same kinds of things that Moses did and Elijah did. And that's why a lot of people think the two witnesses of Revelation 11 will be Moses and Elijah returned. So we believe God still does miracles. We believe sign gifts are not operating now. And the Bible clearly says that after the church is removed, they will be functioning again. Thank you for that extra three minutes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning and thank you for the patience of those here. We thank you for your word, which is so fun to study. It has so many good answers. It's so thrilling to just go through and read and ask questions and search. I just thank you for the privilege of being able to study your word. I thank you for what a blessing it is to me personally and to all those who love you. I pray that all of us would be diligent students of the Bible. As we come week by week, we wouldn't just have Sunday be the time when we are in your word, but Father, all week long, that we would listen to sermons and read our Bibles and read good books that teach us about those things so that we might be blessed, so we might know you, and we might live for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.